to the podcast Against Disease, brought to you by Humanity Against Disease. Today, we're dealing with a very relevant issue, uh, which is COVID-19. We wanted to point out that this is our first episode taking advantage of our remote recording technology. So if we sound a little different, it's because we're not all in the same room so that we can socially distance and not all get (laughs) COVID-19. I'm excited, though. Yeah, should be good stuff. And this is your time to shine, Dr. Chapla, because uh, this is definitely more internal medicine than it is psychiatry, although I'd be happy to weigh in on topics germane to my expertise later on. Yeah, well, I'm super grateful to have some background knowledge to create this episode with you. And I'm excited to talk about the psychiatric disease implications of COVID-19 that we're going to get into later. Radical. So, Kavita, because of the nature of this episode, you said you wanted to disclaim some things. What would you like to disclaim? Absolutely. So first off, I wanted to disclaim that neither Cody nor I are experts in the realm of coronavirus, virology, infectious disease, anything like that. We do have our medical background and we do have an ability to search through and pull information from reputable sources. And I think that is our greatest skill and strength and something that we try to do with every episode. So all of this information has been obtained from the American College of Physicians resource on COVID-19, the CDC, the WHO, Mayo Clinic, and a couple other places um, of similar caliber. And I want to say that There are a lot of different sources, of course, talking about coronavirus right now. And initially, I hesitated to participate in an episode talking about it because I didn't want to be just one of the extra voices causing people stress. But I've seen that there is definitely an opportunity for us to present information in a cool, calm, collected way and give everyone who's listening the right information that they need to know about how it's transmitted, how long it lives on surfaces, what they can do, and give everybody a nice action plan for how to respond to something that's changing our daily way of life. In the end, I think we'll have time to go into some of our own observations that we think are interesting. But the beginning, I think we'll definitely be focused on just giving you guys some good information. Sounds good. So let's start with the perhaps the central question on everybody's mind. Part A is, uh, should we be panicking? I think that in any situation, panic is usually not helpful. And I think that the main things that we can be doing is thinking about how we can stay safe ourselves, protect others, and be one helping hand in the huge effort that it's going to take to address coronavirus and this epidemic. Excellent. So then part B to that line of questioning is what exactly can we be doing, should we be doing to do our part in helping prevent the spread of this disease? Perfect. So you've gotten into the most, probably the most high yield part of this podcast, which I will go over the ACP's recommendations for how to protect yourself and protect others and what the whole deal is with social distancing. Okay. So first off, the way that you reduce your risk of getting any viral respiratory illness like the common cold or the flu or anything is good hygiene. So The best way to do that is washing your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. If you don't have soap and water, you can use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer that has at least 60% alcohol. Mm -hmm. You, When you're washing your hands, lather them up, turn the water off, and sing a song for 20 seconds, any song that you like. Scrub the tops of your hands, your palms, in between your fingers your fingernails, your thumb, and your wrists. Get everything nice and clean, and then 
you know, wash with water, wipe with a paper towel. And then the next thing is you can have clean hands, but it's really hard to have perfectly clean hands all the time. So the other way that you can prevent yourself from getting infected is to avoid touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. If you're about to eat, then make sure that you are washing your hands beforehand. If you have this terrible itch in your eye or you need to blow your nose, think about washing your hands before you do that as well. The next thing to do is to avoid being in contact with people who are sick, just like we would with a cold or a flu, and stay home when you're sick so that you don't accidentally spread it to anybody else. And then if you're sneezing or coughing, try and cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue, cough into your elbow, and then make sure you dispose of these tissues. So you're not just throwing them around everywhere. And then make sure that you clean and disinfect frequently touched objects and surfaces like doorknobs, like your cell phone, things that you touch very frequently. Okay. And this leads me into one of the kind of common things that's come up. So what about face masks? I know that there's the basic surgical masks and there's the N95s. And I know that it's really important that we not try and buy up the N95s as citizens because we already barely have enough of them for healthcare. But is there a role for the surgical masks or for any kind of mask as uh, someone outside the medical profession? Great question, Cody, because I think masks are definitely one of the main images we think of when we think of these uh, viral epidemics. We think of everybody wearing a mask and walking around with gloves. So it's not helpful for a healthy person to wear a mask. And usually what happens is the moisture from your breath and from your nose can affect the integrity of a mask. And so you would probably even need to change this mask after 20 minutes if you were trying to work or avoid getting infected yourself. So it's really not helpful to wear a mask. The only scenario where somebody who's not working in a hospital or in a clinic should wear a mask is if they're sick themselves, because it will help protect your the droplets uh, coming from your mouth and your nose from spreading to the people around you somewhat. That makes sense. It's definitely a huge issue because there right now are shortages of masks for people who work in healthcare, and we're having to do things like ration masks and reuse masks to basically make sure that we have enough masks to take care of all of the people who are sick while we are trying to get more. Okay. So that, that's good to know. If you do have a upper respiratory illness and you happen to have access to surgical masks somewhere, that can be kind of the equivalent of having a uh, an elbow in front of your face so that you're not uh, just spewing infectious particles toward other people quite so much. Absolutely. And then N95 masks, there's really no reason that somebody would need that unless they were working in a hospital directly with a patient who had a COVID-19 infection. Okay. So let's try and leave those to the professionals so that they're not all getting the COVID-19 and needing to occupy the hospital on the patient side. Absolutely. That's definitely a huge concern that I think a lot of doctors, nurses, people who work in hospitals and other capacities have, they're scared of spreading it to patients who don't have it, who are also sick in the hospital. And they can only prevent spread if they have all of the right equipment to wear. Of course. Kavita, how do you define close personal contact? Very good question. So we this is kind of like a wonky answer because it sounds kind of vague, but it's what the CDC has defined as close contact. So if you're thinking about avoiding contact with somebody who you think is sick or keeping people away from you to prevent them from being sick, the CDC recommends that being farther than six feet in a room is helpful. The way that you would spread it or that you could get it is if you were within six feet of someone who is sick for a long amount of time, or if you're caring for, living with, or visiting somebody who is sick, 
or if you had direct contact with the infectious secretion. So like if somebody coughed on you directly, then that's also another way to be exposed. Okay. And so that's why this whole social distancing recommendation is in place. It's a way to kind of keep people from spreading it by asking them to stay at least six feet apart and avoid spending time for prolonged periods of time and in large groups, because if you're in a large group, it's usually harder to stay far away. That makes sense. So they say six feet away um, is a, a good rule of thumb. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of that movie that came out recently, like eight feet or something <laughs> about cystic fibrosis. Hmm. So, I mean, this is great for those of us who are introverts because we just now have ammunition to do the things that we probably wanted to do anyway, like stay away from everybody and be recluses. Absolutely. It's, I think, encouraging everybody to be a little bit more introspective. Okay. So why is social distancing important? Great question. Social distancing, the reason we want to practice social distancing is basically to limit the amount that coronavirus is spreading from one person to another, because this is basically a resource issue. We have a limited number of hospitals. We have a limited number of hospital beds. We have a limited number of ICU beds and a limited number of ventilators, a limited number of healthy medical staff and other support staff who can take care of these people who are sick. And so if we can avoid spreading the virus very quickly, then we can probably avoid putting a huge strain on our entire healthcare infrastructure and avoiding a lack of resources for all of the people who are sick. If we have, say, if people are all together spreading it, if somebody who's sick goes to a party with 100 people and they all get sick in the next two weeks and they're all living in the same city and they all show up to the same hospital and let's say... 30 of them are really, really sick and need to be in the hospital and maybe need extra breathing support. That's going to be a huge strain on the entire hospital in every way versus if people kept their distance and maybe the virus spread a little bit because it's still going to spread somewhat, even if we try our best. And then let's say there's just five or 10 people who are sick that need to go to the hospital and need help with their breathing. That's kind of the whole reason that this is being put in place, because we just unfortunately don't have unlimited resources and an unlimited people to treat and help everyone who would get sick if they all got sick at the same time. Okay. So this is, the idea is spreading things out means that we're not going to jam up the works and leave a long line for things like ventilators that are necessary to save lives. So basically by just staying away from people and washing our hands and doing these practices, we are likely to not only reduce the number of cases, but also reduce the severity of outcomes because there will be more hospital resources to go around per sick person. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly it. it it's like if everybody finished a marathon and collapsed all at the same time versus if people were finishing their race at different times, then there would be enough people, you know, to take their race tag off and make sure that they know their time and give them a banana, things like that. Okay. Important facts. Yeah. So I talked about it a little bit through talking about the most important things for everyone who's listening to do about COVID-19, but this infection spreads from person to person through respiratory droplets. So that's basically your spit saliva spray of your mouth when you cough, when you sneeze, that those little virus particles, they're suspended in little water droplets and they can stay in the air or they can stick on to surfaces. Okay. And then there's maybe some question that it might spread also through stool and then somebody's stool contaminates a surface and someone else touches that surface and then touches their mouth. But that's not the main way that it's about to be spreading. This 
virus can stay alive and infectious in in the air for hours and on surfaces for days. Wow. So it's really important to clean things and to stay clear of people even if, for example, even if we are walking through an area and we don't see anybody who's visibly sick, it's still worth trying to keep our distance from people and give everybody a wide berth because it's it can linger for a long time. Eh? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we don't know who maybe was in that same spot before us. So it sounds like, I wonder if this is, this is probably an off the wall suggestion, but I wonder if those of us who are uh, physically able to take stairs would do better to avoid elevators and these kinds of things during these times as well. You know, that, that could be a good idea. I'm not sure exactly how well air is, uh, I that's guess, true. changed out of elevators, but I think that's a, a good thought because you're kind of staying in one spot. Yeah. Yeah, you're convincing me. We should definitely wash <laughs> our hands. We should definitely stay away from uh, other people, especially in large groups. Yeah. It kills me to say that because I'm such an extrovert and I love hanging out with people. So it's been very challenging, but I've now understood enough to realize why that's important. Because the other part of it is that the idea that people who aren't showing symptoms might have the virus and be spreading it during that time. They've found that people who have the disease but aren't showing symptoms yet actually have a lot of virus particles in their mouth and their throat oh, no. in that early stage. So you, Cody, may be feeling completely well and you may have been exposed to somebody or may exposed, been, been exposed to a surface that had coronavirus and touched your mouth and then you may have it you may feel completely fine, be out and about, and you may be spreading at that time and not even realize it. Well, that's spooky. So it sounds like we should use elevated caution even if we are not sick. Giving people their space and making sure that we're acting safely could end up being helpful even if we don't think we have the disease or have been exposed to it yet. Absolutely. So I think even if you are feeling well, still think about covering your cough or not touching a lot of things that other people might be touching to maybe keep those people safe from something you don't know that you might even have. Okay. There was a research study done very recently. It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it looked at coronavirus cases in China at 181 cases between the 4th of January and the 24th of February. And they were trying to figure out how long the virus incubates, basically, you know, builds up and grows inside somebody until they develop symptoms. Okay. So the usual incubation period is thought to be five days and about 98% of the people who develop symptoms are going to do so within 11 and a half days of being infected. So essentially that means you would get infected on day one. You might, the virus might just chill in your body for five days. And then within the next 12 days, you would show symptoms or not. That's why this whole 14 day quarantine thing exists because based on the best data that we have, it sounds like within 14 days, you could either just have the virus cooking inside of you, or that would be your time frame to show symptoms. Okay. Can I, can I jump in for a second and yeah. ask a question? Mm -hmm. So you said the virus could be cooking inside of you. I don't really know what that means. Like then I could, you know, so I have the virus and I could be spreading the virus but I don't know because I don't have any symptoms. And then after 14 days, am I no longer, like, is the virus not cooking anymore? Or it's like I'm not contagious at that point anymore? Yeah, it sounds like if you don't develop symptoms within 14 days, you should be in the clear, at least for that exposure. Yes, that's correct. So, Kavita, what does a serial interval mean? So the serial interval is defined in epidemiology as the time between successive cases in a chain of disease transmission. So that is basically like the average time that the virus will 
stay cook and somebody like stay dormant and their body's trying to figure out whether it's going to end up becoming a full-blown infection or whether the body's going to fight it off. That's that incubation period and the time that they'll show symptoms. So while we did say that the average incubation period was 5.1 days and then 97.5% of the people who develop symptoms are going to do so within 11.5 days, generally the interval at which transmission is happening. So somebody gets exposed to the virus and then they develop infection is four to four and a half days. So this short interval means that you could spread things without having symptoms pretty easily. It's kind of like HIV has an even longer um, serial interval. So if you think about somebody who gets infected with HIV infection, it may take them a long time for their body to have a reaction where they feel really sick or a time where they actually get diagnosed with HIV. And so that person could have sexual contact or be sharing needles or any sort of contact of bodily fluids like blood over a pretty long amount of time before they realized that they were spreading HIV. And so in the same way, four to four and a half days isn't as long as that period, but it's still a long period for you to have an exposure and be interacting with so many people over four and four and a half days without even realizing that you might have put them at risk. Yeah, that's almost a whole work week. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how exactly does COVID infect people? So I'm going to take a step back and talk a little bit about viruses so everybody can kind of understand how viruses infect people and then how COVID infects people. Okay. So viruses are very interesting because viruses are not living. They're kind of like these little bundles that have a schematic, a blueprint, and basic building blocks all contained in this little, basically like little ball, little capsid. And they travel around, and when they find a cell, they attached to the cell and then they basically like inject their blueprint and anything else they need to build their empire all within that little tiny sphere. So the coronavirus is it. So there's two different types of viruses. There's RNA viruses and DNA viruses. It basically just means what kind of blueprint material they're carrying into the cell with them. And Coronaviruses, they carry this single blueprint schematic into the cell with them. And then that schematic, basically, they show it around to everything in the cell and they say, okay, guys, stop what you're doing. You guys are now fully making machinery for me to keep spreading to other cells. So then what the virus does is once it has its blueprint and it's basically started its program of construction and building, they start building new virus little globes, spheres, and shooting them out of that cell so that they can go elsewhere. That's essentially how viruses work. And the coronavirus, what it does is it enters the cell, it attaches to a specific type of protein that is most found in, or sorry, yeah, binds itself to a specific type of protein on the outside surface of a cell that is found the most in the lungs and the heart. And that's why we have respiratory symptoms with COVID-19, because it's mainly affecting the cells that are in the lungs. And that is the reason that you end up getting cough, you end up getting difficulty breathing, and the fever kind of just comes from having a general infection. Okay. And the reason it's not affecting the heart so much is because the heart is not as directly um, exposed to the ex or to the outside world. Yeah, I, I would say so. It's a little harder to get to the heart versus the lungs because the lungs are breathing in and out air all day long. Okay, so if you happen to be someone with a heart outside your rib cage, do not go smearing it on people with, um, <laughs> with COVID. Absolutely. So, what does somebody with COVID look like? How do, what kind of symptoms should people be looking for? So this is once again, that great range. So there are people who can have no symptoms. So people who get exposed to the virus, they have no symptoms. They'll probably be spreading it to other people, but they're not feeling anything. And then their body bites it off and they're done. 
there are people who might feel like they have a cold or people who might feel like they kind of have the flu where they're feeling achy, they're maybe having some cough, things like that. And then there are people who have a really bad pneumonia. So where they're having fevers, they're having cough, they're having difficulty breathing, and then they might also feel really crummy, feel really weak, things like that. And what about diarrhea? So I know we've run out of toilet paper in most of the country (laughs) due to all this panic buying. Should we be worried about gastrointestinal symptoms? Good question. I find the rapid buying of toilet paper to be very interesting as well. But it is unfortunate because now it's kind of limiting everybody's access to toilet paper. The diarrhea has been reported uh, to the CDC as a symptom of COVID-19, but it's less common than the main symptoms, which again are fever, cough, uh, muscle aches, fatigue, and shortness of breath. So some people have also said, oh, I am having a lot of phlegm, I'm having headaches, I'm coughing up blood, and I'm having diarrhea and nausea. So it's possible. Okay. So if, if somebody thinks they've got it, what should they do? That is a great question. So the first thing I would say if somebody thinks they've got it is to definitely limit their interaction with the people around them and then to get in touch with their primary care office or if they do not have a primary care office, then the health department for each region has info on clinics you can get care in that uh, you don't need insurance for, those would be sort of the first steps. You'll call the clinic. Every clinic generally should have a process for the questions they screen for people to either be a person who might have COVID-19 or a person who probably doesn't have it. If you have internet, there's a really great tool out there that just came out called the Human Diagnosis Project COVID tool. It is an online app, and I think you can get it on the Human Diagnosis Project app as well. It basically asks you a bunch of questions about your age, about what medical conditions you have, about what symptoms you're having, and it can give you an estimate of how bad things look and what what you need to do next. I I tried it out. I just tested it. I put my age, someone without any medical conditions, and then said I was having cough and I think the, no, cough and something else. Um, And it went through the whole process and it told me that I should stay at home uh, and gave me an entire list of things I should be doing to help manage my symptoms, to protect other people, and then kind of what to do if things got worse. I think that tool could be really useful for people. And then the next thing is there are a lot of hospitals which are now opening testing tents or triage tents where you can go. I think Hopkins, their tent is open from 11 to 7 every day, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., and people can just go there. They can get screened by somebody who will then figure out whether they need to get tested or not. And then sometimes those people might have to come into the emergency room and get more blood work or get more treatment. So that's an option as well. The testing has been challenging because the CDC initially could not meet the demand for testing that we needed. And so now a lot of private labs and academic hospitals are developing their own tests. And so there will slowly be more tests available. What can people do as far as getting treatment if they do turn out to get it? So if they turn out to get it, and I'll just say the test, if anybody has had it or if they're thinking about what that test might entail, it basically involves a long Q-tip that is either put in your nose and swabbed or put in your throat and swabbed, or sometimes people will cough up a sample of their phlegm, and that will get taken down. Those are kind of the main ways that the sample is taken. And then, interestingly, these samples, they have to be, like, double-bagged and taken down by hand to the lab, and they have to be handled very carefully because we don't want to spread it anywhere in the hospital or in the lab that's testing. If somebody gets COVID-19, 
they definitely have a range of presentations, right? Some people have just mild symptoms like a cold and some people get really, really sick where they need support with their breathing. So right now there are no drugs that or certain types of treatments that are known to be effective for treating coronavirus. So the main thing is to just support people through what's going on. It's kind of similar to how if you have the flu or if you have a cold that your doctor thinks is due to a virus, they usually say, oh, you don't need antibiotics because it's a virus. And here are a bunch of different medicines to help you feel more comfortable with the cough. Um, This is what I recommend you do to feel more comfortable from the body aches, things like that. Usually people who go in the hospital, they are more sick either because the COVID-19 infection has affected another medical condition that they have, like maybe their blood sugars are hard to control and they have diabetes, or maybe they have COPD and their breathing is now really bad, or um, et cetera. Or sometimes the coronavirus, the COVID-19 infection can also just make it really hard for people to breathe. And so they need oxygen, they need extra support. Sometimes people who get really sick, they have to go to the ICU and need ventilators. There are a lot of things being investigated for coronavirus, and I'm sure some of you guys who are listening may have heard some names or some drugs that are being tested. I can go through a couple just in case you guys have heard them on the news. So there's a a drug called remdesivir. It's basically a drug that looks like a building block of DNA and RNA, and there are a bunch of trials going on right now testing it. There's no evidence saying that it definitely works. It is available for something called compassionate use by the drug company that makes it. And that essentially means that it can be given on a one-to-one basis to treat seriously ill patients for this condition um, that has no available treatments. But it's not something that's mainstream at this time. Okay. So at least if somebody is in need of a last-ditch effort and they've exhausted all of their options, it might be something they can try, but we don't know if it's actually going to help yet. Correct. Okay. And then there's another drug that I'm sure everyone might be hearing about in the news called chloroquine. This is kind of an immune drug, which is mainly used for malaria treatment right now. And they've had studies showing that it was effective in decreasing the the amount, the speed at which the virus was basically manufacturing new virus and spreading it to the body in SARS and MERS. So in severe acute respiratory syndrome and MERS, which is Middle East during respiratory syndrome. There are trials going on right now to see if it's helpful in COVID-19. Okay. And then two other things that people might hear about are NSAIDs, so like ibuprofen, Aleve, Advil, and ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. Those are usually blood pressure medicines that people are on. So there was some hearsay that Advil, Aleve, ibuprofen, those were making people with COVID-19 have more severe disease. And there's been no evidence showing that that is the case. So there's no reason to not take that right now if anyone wanted to help themselves feel better in terms of muscle aches or things. And I mean, Tylenol is always a good option as well. And then ACE inhibitors and ARBs are medicines like lisinopril or losartan, captopril, um, irbisartan, things like that, that people usually take for their blood pressure. They're there was some thought that maybe these were linked to people having worse disease because the same receptor that these drugs act on is the same receptor that the COVID-19 virus latches onto when it wants to first enter the cell. And they have so far found no evidence linking being on one of these medicines with having more severe disease. And so the current recommendation by the ACC, the American College of Cardiology, is to stay on these medicines because it's important to control your blood pressure even when there's a pandemic going on. Okay. Yeah, and it sounds like it's probably more important than ever to control any other medical 
problems we may have going on because um, presumably having a stroke at a time like this or another consequence of, of another medical problem would be uh, more dangerous given the context. Absolutely. Yes. I think it's a very important time for everybody to stay focused on all of their other medical conditions as well. I know a lot of things are changing really quickly right now, but I know Natalie was hoping we would discuss the vaccine and what role that might have in this whole process. Obviously, there are at least a few firms looking into this. I imagine it's kind of a holy grail right now because whoever comes up with it's going to save tons and tons of lives. Yeah, I will confess, Cody, that I don't know much about how vaccines are developed and how quickly they're developed and I guess how quickly they can be tested to be safe and effective in the general population and then sent all over the country or all over the world to to people. Mm. So I, I honestly don't know, but I feel like it, it takes at least some amount of time in the manner of like months, but I, I just don't know. Okay. Well, I think it's it's fair to say we can revisit that as we learn more, but certainly in the early stage of what's going on, there's it's not realistic to expect the vaccine to change the course for at least months, probably much longer. Yeah. I think right now our main ways of controlling this infection are the social distancing, washing our hands, keeping ourselves safe and healthy from spreading it to other people and from getting it from other people and then keeping hospitals as open and free as possible to be places to support people who have more serious infections. I think that's probably what we're going to do for the next couple of months. And then I'm sure people, scientists are working really hard to figure out drugs that can be helpful or vaccines. Okay. And Kavita, what's your sense of what's different now like this is clearly we're responding uh, in a different way and it seems to be a much different problem compared to SARS and MERS which are related diseases yeah this is also a question that I won't say I have all the answers on but I guess I can offer some perspective okay. so I think SARS definitely had that same kind of flavor of people being really worried about it it was active in 2003, mostly in Asia. And I think um, from what I'm reading, there were eight people who in the U.S. who had gotten SARS and they had traveled to those areas. And I think the response for SARS, if I remember correctly, I remember everybody thinking, oh man, like there was so much hype generated and then this didn't end up being like a thing. Mm -hmm. They did have, you know, there were 8,000 people who were infected, which is way less than the you know hundreds of thousands of people infected by COVID now. And I'm not completely sure exactly why it didn't spread as much. Maybe there was just a big crackdown on trying to contain the virus early and all of that hype that we thought was unnecessary maybe was important to controlling it. Um, the great thing is there's no more SARS after 2004, and now it's just stored in probably some biocontainment lab somewhere in a secret location. MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, is interesting. I had never really thought about it that much. I would see it sometimes, you know, on, in the airport waiting line as, you know, Zika virus, MERS, you know, have you traveled to the Arabian Peninsula? But it's essentially a similar respiratory type virus that is really limited to the Arabian Peninsula. It was first found in Jordan and Saudi Arabia in 2012. And the, MERS is actually pretty scary to me because there have been fewer cases. There's only been t about 2,484 confirmed cases of MERS since 2012, but 858 of those people have died. So the rate of death for people with MERS is 35%. Wow. Yeah. That's awful. I'm not sure why MERS hasn't spread more either. It sounds really scary, and I hope it never does spread. But maybe it's because it's limited to a geographic region where there's probably not as much travel happening. Aside from, like, people going to the UAE, I think the rest of the Arabian Peninsula is not a frequent travel destination. Okay. With 
COVID-19, I'm just wondering if maybe all of our rapid globalization and all of this travel and transport of people and goods is part of the the process of spreading it. And I think there may have been a later response to it. And so that's probably making it a little bit harder to control because we're kind of behind the eight ball. Okay. And yeah, it sounds like with that um, silent period of four to five days, in a lot of cases, there's going to be a lot of spread, even if people are quarantining themselves as soon as they notice a symptom. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of a crazy thought that there could be so much asymptomatic spread going on. It's mainly people who are older who have other medical conditions that either make them have a weak immune system or other things that might be affecting their lungs or their heart at the same time, like bad COPD, things like that. But just like how influenza can sometimes cause young, healthy people to be really, really sick, I think in the same way, there's potential and possibility for COVID-19 to also make young, healthy people very sick as well. Okay. So I did want to talk about a couple of other things that we should keep in mind. So, of course, the effects of COVID itself on our physical health are going to be kind of front and center in people's minds. But there's an ongoing mental health crisis in, in this country, and a stressor like this is bound to push on a lot of these things that aren't going to go away just because there's a, an epidemic or a pandemic, as it were, uh, in play. So I wanted to point out a couple of things, especially for those of you who are stressed out about all these massive changes. And you know, some of you may have lost your job. Some of you may have to deal with major changes in your plans uh, and having to arrange emergent child care solutions, elder care solutions, and so on. So I want to give uh, tips where I can. Those of you who are trying to get mental health help during this pandemic, a lot of practices are converting over to telepsychiatry. I would recommend that you check with your existing provider if you've been meaning to get an appointment and are not sure if it would be wise to make it. There's a good chance that they can do it by phone or uh, another modality in the near future if they're not set up for it yet. There's been a lot of expedited changes being made. If you don't have a provider yet, keep in mind that because a lot of providers are converting over to telehealth, you might be able to reach out to providers a little bit farther away and still see them practically if the wait is too long for uh, a local provider or if they're not going to be able to accommodate uh, remote visits at this time. And another thing to keep in mind is with this talk of shutting down non-essential services, there are a lot of people out there who are physically dependent on uh, alcohol and not to say that the other uh, addictive problems are not uh, critically important as well. But if you know anyone in your life who is needing alcohol daily to avoid withdrawal, this would be a very good time to encourage them to quit if they're able, because if the supply does become unstable for any reason, either because of a shutdown or because the manufacturing slows down and distribution slows down, alcohol withdrawal is life-threatening and someone who's in severe withdrawal might end up needing to go to the emergency room and may have a much harder time getting help because that same emergency room might be overwhelmed with uh, other COVID-related problems. So that's just something to keep in mind, not to panic, but if someone is forward-thinking enough to make those changes while there's still access to those things, it could save lives. And Cody, how would you recommend if somebody is dependent on alcohol to cut down or quit their use? Like say somebody is worried about withdrawing if they're trying to cut down before COVID shuts down liquor stores. Of course. So I'm not an addiction psychiatrist by trade, but I do have some experience. So depending on the severity of the 
addiction. Certainly detox programs are available. I know that given the current situation, it's a lot harder to find beds and it might be, or it might leave you exposed to um, infectious diseases. But as far as doing things outside the hospital, certainly tapering down gradually is the safest way to do this if you are uh, not able to access professional help. But my advice would be to meet with your healthcare provider remotely if possible and come up with a taper plan that either uses tapering down on the alcohol itself or what would be a little bit easier on the body is tapering down with certain medications, benzodiazepines, that are able to manage that withdrawal. Because you know, if you're able to step down slowly off this, it, uh, it could allow you to avoid a pretty serious consequence later on down the line. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think I encourage anyone who has a loved one who has a physical dependence on alcohol to really keep an eye on them during this period. Because I think bars closing was one thing, but if liquor stores closed, then a lot of people could be in trouble. And it'll be good to have people watching out for them. Yeah. I guess we wanted to close with this set of recommendations from the Mayo Clinic, since many of you are probably starting to get COVID anxiety at this point. And hopefully some of our recommendations have been able to help with that a little bit. But what the Mayo Clinic would like you to consider is to avoid watching or reading news about COVID-19 that makes you feel anxious. Limit reading or watching news about COVID-19 to once or twice a day. So if you are taking that advice and you've chosen us for your one or two a day, (laughs) then we thank you. It's such good advice. I totally feel like my anxiety level goes up the more things I read about it. (laughs) Yeah. Get the facts about COVID-19, share them with others, and check reputable sites. Yeah, check in with the CDC and the WHO. This is uh, is a period where you don't necessarily want to trust a Facebook reshare from your aunt's cousin as your... Um, gospel truth. Make sure that you've checked with a reputable source before you make any changes to your disaster preparedness here. And uh, take care of yourself. Make sure that you're eating healthy, getting enough sleep, getting regular exercise. This is a good time to take up a meditation practice if you uh, are not already doing so, or some other form, perhaps yoga, tai chi, these kinds of things would be Uh, worth thinking about at this time. Avoid alcohol and drugs, especially given the concerns about alcohol I mentioned before. It could be easy for someone even without an alcohol habit to get into a relatively intense drinking regimen if they've got a lot of anxiety and don't have anything else going on. So just something to keep in mind. Do things you enjoy, such as reading a book, watching a movie, or going on a walk. Going on a walk, of course, comes with some asterisks. Just be aware that if you're able to walk indoors or if you're able to walk someplace where it's a little bit less populated, that would be uh, preferable. You don't necessarily want to be in the middle of the action and near a bunch of others. Keep connected with family and friends. Call your mom. Just avoid being mentally isolated, even if you have to be physically isolated, and be willing to share your feelings with them if you're able. Try to stay positive and be optimistic. Uh, I saw a comic online. It was like, the world's not coming to an end. It's just going to suck for a while. So I think that's, (laughs) for most of us, that is going to be the case. Unfortunately, there are going to be some people who are going to go through a health emergency, but hopefully we can keep that number as low as possible. And hopefully the, the fine people manning the emergency departments, manning and womaning the emergency departments and uh, intensive care units of the country and the world will be able to help those people out and save some lives. And show appreciation for healthcare workers uh, who care for those with uh, COVID-19 in your community. And I will add, please show appreciation for anyone who's involved in healthcare. That means people who are part of the housekeeping staff, people who are 
transporting supplies, um, people who are preparing food in the hospital cafeteria or anywhere else. And really, honestly, I think everybody deserves applause for how they're working from home, taking care of their kids at the same time, trying to develop lesson plans as teachers, students who are trying to take classes online. I think everybody is being challenged in different ways. And I think if we can all support each other and do our part with the very sort of specific action items that we've provided in this podcast, then we can get through this. Yeah, and I would second that. I think we're all making big sacrifices and big changes, and I certainly don't want to minimize the efforts that our frontline healthcare workers are making, but we're kind of all in this together, and I think everybody's actions are important in this time, whether you're manning the subway at the uh, hospital or whether you are... I mean, heck, even if you're working at the liquor store right now, you might be saving some lives, helping keep people, uh, helping stock people with what they need, at least until they're able to make a different choice. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if we all give our best effort over this difficult time, we can make this a lot less bad than it could be. And although there's a lot that's still unknown, we do have the advantage of faster information dissemination than we've ever had before in an event like this. And we are planning to do our part and we'll offer uh, an update to this as soon as we gather enough information to feel that we can comment meaningfully on, on new events. Absolutely. And if you found this podcast episode to be useful, please share it with your family and friends. We do feel comfortable knowing that we've shared only what we know to be recommended by various medical organizations. And also, if you have any questions that are non-urgent, please send them our way and we'll try and address them in future podcast episodes. Have you ever listened to the Humanity Against Disease podcast and wondered how to get in touch with us? Have you ever tried to contact us by carrier pigeon and failed? Well, we have news for you. You can reach us by a couple of different methods. So we got our electronic mail address, which is againstdisease at gmail.com. We have a Twitter handle, which is at againstdisease. We've got an Instagram, which is also at againstdisease. And we have a Facebook, which the easiest way to find us is to type humanity against disease into the search tab and like us or message us about anything. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see our regular website, which is updated a little less often, but has a lot of the pillars, mission statements, et cetera, that is humanityagainstdisease.com.